For the cold open, I thought I'd just open by saying it's cold. There were flurries out this morning here in Minnesota, October 11th, when we're recording this. Yeah, it's pretty much like summer in Minnesota, though, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's it's like 37 degrees, and it'll be 50 on Saturday, so it's not, you know nothing's going to stick even today, let alone stick around. But man, it just seems like it was August like five days ago. That's, I mean, that's part of the beauty of football season is you start out in, well, I was going to say two-a-days, but I guess they don't do those anymore. Um, and you're sweating to death, and then by the end of the season, you've got like sweatshirt under your uniform, and you're in the rain and uh, and snow and whatnot. And we didn't have flurries here today in the D.C. area. We just had a little bit of rain, but certainly can't complain because Florida, Georgia, maybe Alabama, they're definitely getting the worst of the weather this week. Best wishes to everybody down there whenever any of you down there actually get an opportunity to listen to a podcast. We, uh, we appreciate it. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. This week's slate features a key game in the Wyack picture, the key game in the MIAC, tough test for playoff contenders in the Empire 8, OAC, MAC, and for the one centennial team which plays this week. We might not have six consensus games that everyone needs to follow like we did in week six, but there's plenty to be intrigued by in week seven of the NCAA Division Three football season. I'm Pat Coleman. This is our Friday podcast where we take a look at uh, what's coming up. This is your game day podcast. Welcoming in Keith McMillan. Keith, welcome. Pat, it will be pretty tough for uh, week seven to match what week six and week five delivered in terms of end of game intrigue, big matchups between top 25 teams, in some cases, top 10 teams. But uh, but yeah, we do have a couple of good things to look forward to. I think you mentioned the that key game in the MIAC, the Tommy-Johnny rivalry. We're still calling it that for at least another couple of days. And then, uh, and then this WIAC game and a bunch of games actually around the country are sort of second place games where like it's not the top two teams necessarily clashing, but it's teams two and three in a conference race trying to keep pace with team number one or teams three and four trying to keep pace with one and two. You see that a lot across the country and kind of makes sense because we're five weeks in. Well, we're set. We're, we're going into week seven, but a lot of teams have had to buy somewhere in there. So most teams have had five games played. Very few are, uh, are, I've got six under their belt at this point. But um, almost every conference is in a situation where there are a couple of teams trying to keep pace with the top dogs and then a couple that are going to fall back to the middle of the pack. So see a lot of that here in week seven, and, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to dissecting it with you. If you're new to the site or new to this podcast or new to any of the D3 sports sites, uh, what we do with a lot of the big rivalries, the ones that are just named after the two schools, is we give the honor of being listed first to the team that won most recently. And so for the Tommy Johnny game, that is why St. Thomas is listed first and has been for uh, four years running. We'll talk more about that game when we run over some of the big games. Similarly, we've done the same thing with Oh, basketball season starts soon, so I have to remind myself whether it's Hope Calvin or Calvin Hope. You'll have to listen to some other podcasts to figure that out. But I know that immediately after I stop recording this podcast is when we put out the D3Hoops.com preseason men's basketball top 25. So it is crossover season for me, crossover season for a lot, but it's, uh, it is definitely some, uh, there are definitely some big games. Keith, we're going to talk more about them kind of granularly and, and more specifically in a little bit, but you mentioned... Um, you know, games between uh, contenders in the OAC, that's between John Carroll and Ohio Northern, uh, UW-Platteville and UW-Oshkosh squaring off, uh, Lycoming and Delaware Valley. Uh, those those are the sorts of games that, while they're not necessarily going to be going to give us an indicator today or on Saturday, who's going to be 
in driver's seat for the automatic bid, it is going to help kind of clear up a lot of those playoff pictures. Pat, it's crossover season for you when you start doing a little bit of D3 hoops along with your D3football.com work. And for me, since I only do the D3 site, the start of crossover season is sort of the indication that it's start time for me to start paying attention to the playoff picture. That means strength of schedule numbers. That means wondering who will be in the regional rankings when those come out in a couple of weeks from the NCAA. And we'll get into discussions on future podcasts on what the five main playoff criteria are. But for all intents and purposes, obviously, you just want your team to keep winning, chase that automatic bid for most everybody who is chasing one. Uh, 25 out of the 28 conferences are now uh, are now automatic bid conferences. And the games this week, especially that one in Minnesota, are going to play big roles in uh, and not just who wins the automatic bid, but who's in a good good shape to pick up an at-large. Yeah, and it's 26 of the conferences, of course, because the American Southwest Conference gets its automatic bid back. Keith mentioned strength of schedule. We've kept a listing of our calculation of the formula that the NCAA uses for strength of schedule. Super geeky for about 30 seconds here. A team's strength of schedule is uh, uses two-thirds opponent's winning percentage, that's called OWP, and one-third opponent's opponent's winning percentage, which is OOWP. It's kind of like an RPI calculation, but not really because it doesn't take the... Uh, team's winning percentage into account. Uh, we have listed that formula on the website for you know many, many years running. It's usually about this time of year that we start displaying this year's numbers because they begin to make a little bit of sense. It's not. Uh, it, it's obviously still fairly early for some teams. Linfield, for example, sits at the top of the at the top of the mark, but they've only played three games against Division three opponents. So you still get to take some of these numbers with a grain of salt, and you see. If you look at it, you see TCNJ is in the top five strength of schedule. But of course, they're 0-5. So you just got to use this number in the sense that it's meant to be used for. But uh, for example, right now, Johns Hopkins looking pretty good right now, even though they're 5-1. and one. Some of these things will come back to the pack. Of course, it only takes into account games that have been played so far. Uh, so, you know, if, if you have some of the uh, stronger teams... In your, on your schedule, on the back half of the schedule, your number will rise. If you had some of the stronger teams in the front half of your schedule, then your number will probably drop. And Pat, as you mentioned, 26 teams will have an, an automatic bid to the playoffs because the American Southwest gets its bid this season. Um, a 27th team will, co- will come from Pool B, which will be uh, either someone from the New Mac or Thomas Moore. And then the, there are only five at-large spots. And when we talk about strength of schedule and these other playoff cri- criteria, it's really going to be to put those five other teams into the playoffs to make a field of 32 and then to seed and to give home games when they when they when the committee sets up the, the 32-team matchup. So that's a little ways off in week 11, but we start caring about it now because it starts to matter soon. We, we're really tr- figuring out, okay, if a team is not in at the top of its conference right now and doesn't have a big game coming up, does it have a shot at, at being an at-large team? And that's where um, head-to-head games – your one loss record, common opponents, strength of schedule, and then wins against regionally ranked opponents will come in to play. You know, uh, Jim Catanzaro, who's the head coach at Lake Forest College and is the chair of the Division Three football committee this year, is a frequent listener to the podcast. We can tell by the way he references it on Twitter. I feel a little weird uh, saying this without uh, having talked to him, but we would like to have him on uh, one of these podcasts in the next couple of weeks to kind of talk through some of this stuff too for people who are new to the playoff picture, people who are just, you know, 
pursuing uh, uh, fans of teams that are pursuing the playoffs. So I also will follow up with Coach Cat before he hears this podcast. But uh, I'm just putting this out here now. That is something that's a conversation that we want to have. And maybe it will be a separate extra podcast and we won't, uh, you know, we'll, we'll drop an extra half hour somewhere in the middle of the week in the next few weeks. Oh, yeah. Way to commit us to more work. Well, I figure in this one, I'm committing myself to more work. If we find a chance, a way to get you into it, that's cool. But if not, that's how we can, by lifting it out of the regular podcast uh, schedule, we might be able to uh, give you a day off on that. Well, not not to go too far off on this tangent, but it actually is a time saver when we, the, when the process is transparent. You explain what teams are looking for, how they get into the postseason, and you can kind of prevent a lot of that angst um, when teams know what they need to do to get in or to be considered in, in for one of those five at-large spots. That committee is made up of eight members in any given year. It's two members from each region. They are made up of uh, football coaches uh, and athletic directors, uh, conference commissioners, uh, other athletics uh, staff personnel. We talk with Mike Maynard coming up in just a couple of minutes. Mike Maynard is the head coach at the University of Redlands out in California, and he was a member of that national committee for several years. So we'll, we'll talk to him a little bit about that when we come back. This seems like a good time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by nobody. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches, and administrators who need to replace their 13-year-old artificial turf, those sorts of things, by sponsoring the Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would wax poetic about your product or service right here while we're at break. So think about it and drop me a line at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. Two podcasts a week means you get twice the opportunity to reach people and we're not really we wouldn't really charge you twice as much for that opportunity so think about that and you know where to find me pat one of these weeks one of these rivals is going to get savvy and you wouldn't be surprised if just a bunch of tommies got together put a couple bucks in and, and just bought the sponsorship of the podcast so they could talk to johnny's or vice versa you know, Keith, I listen to a lot of podcasts where uh, those sorts of things are offered at like the price point of like $100 or something like that for a personal message or $200 for a commercial one. I would be glad to say here right now, if you are a leader of a group of those sorts of fans or just a member of those sorts of groups of fans and you want to get your shout out here on the podcast, uh, we'll do that for you for 50 bucks. I might do that myself for uh, week 11. You should get your uh, yellow jacket buds in on this. I think that would be a great idea. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, I'm joined by Mike Maynard, the head coach at the University of Redlands in his 31st season as the head coach of the Bulldogs. And coach, uh, first of all, thanks for uh, giving me some time after the game on Saturday for this. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to have you here, Pat, and uh, we enjoy your company. I'm going to turn around a question for you that uh, uh, your radio guys asked me at half. They asked me where this uh, stadium and this venue and the setting kind of fits in, in the Division Three echelon. And what I want to ask you is, the my version of this question for you is, where did this game on Saturday night against Chapman kind of rank in the in the Redlands echelon? Is this a, you know, is this is this like a typical game? Is this a typical uh, event, a typical crowd, et cetera? You know, Pat, I think it is a typical event. Um, I love our fans and, and uh, our community turns out well. Our, our young people at the university turn out well. 
Um, I think we have an exciting brand of football that people really enjoy coming to watch. And uh, we have some wonderful young men that are really well supported by their families and friends. So I think this is typical. It's always been a battle. You know, it, there are no easy games in Division Three, particularly when you play in conference. So the game against Chapman was, uh, you know, wasn't an epic game. It was a very hard game. It was a very difficult game for us to, to win. And uh, I, uh, I have a lot of respect for Chapman and what they do. So it was a great win for us. It, it kind of sets us up to uh, uh, march into the conference uh, uh, race, uh, you know, being uh, undefeated so far and uh, gives us some momentum going into our Claremont game next week. Yeah, so what's it like having a game of this uh, importance so early in the season? I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot of games to go in the conference race, and you're not the only undefeated team in the conference race so far, but these are the two teams that have decided the conference for several years running. You know, everybody, it's so hard. Every game is tough. Um, it's nice to have this game. It's a game that we failed in last year. We fell short at their facility, and it's, it's really been a game that a lot of our young men have looked forward to. We were able to get them this year, and uh, we're going to celebrate tonight, but we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of things we need to get better at. I can assume there, I can think of a, a few, you'll probably uh, look at it in film and video review and decide the same sort of things. 39-26 win, but when I watched the first couple of possessions, I felt like you guys really not only out-physicaled them, but out-executed. You looked just from the eye test to be a better football team and then, you know, made a, a handful of mistakes and some of those came back after the, later in the game too. We, we did make plenty of mistakes. Thank you for the compliment. Um, our strength coach, uh, Joe Buckley, does a fantastic job with our young man. We train hard in season, out of season, and I thought that that was really a factor tonight. Our conditioning, our strength really came on. Uh, I didn't notice it as much in the first half, but I felt in the fourth quarter that we were getting a little bit better push, and, and, uh, and I thought that made a difference. It definitely seemed like you guys wore them down. You had that you had that possession uh, late in the fourth quarter where you had your pick six called back, yeah. but then you just kind of wore you wore them down. You ran ten plays at them and just just took the air out of everything. I was I was disappointed that the play came back. Uh, we blocked behind the play. It's a dumb dumb thing to do. We need to coach that better. Um, but it did give us a chance to put the offense on the field and use the clock well, and it gave us a chance to take some time off the clock before we scored. So in that from that standpoint. We, we, we took a negative and made it a positive. In those last three minutes of this game, after that touchdown that we just talked about, then Chapman comes and returns the next kick 100 yards for a touchdown. You come back with a defensive two-point conversion, and then they recover the onside kick. Now, the game is in hand at that point, right? You really won it with that long drive. But how much of that, those kind of mistakes at the end of the game, do you still take back and work on for the future weeks? Well, I think they're really key, Pat, and, and uh, that's the second onside kick that we have not gotten and we back to back weeks and, and you know obviously good football teams can't let that happen and we've got to do a better job closing things out and I've got to do a better job coaching particularly on our hands unit to make sure that that doesn't happen again but uh, I, I felt like our guys were playing hard um, we just made some critical errors uh, in some ways mental and uh, that obviously is uh, part of growing as a football team and, and uh, we've got to do a better job coaching them. You made a pretty early change at quarterback tonight. Uh, you brought in Nate Martinez after just the first couple of possessions, and, and I thought he did really well. But what did you see early on that prompted you to make that decision so quickly in the game? Well, we're a little concerned, really, for, with the injury situation. He came off the field and had, had a situation, you know, in terms of injury that I didn't want to take a chance with. 
Levi uh, is, is, is tough as they come, and, and I have great respect, and I admire him so much. And um, he really didn't want to tell me much about what happened, and I had to really talk in depth with our athletic trainer. And uh, he and I made the decision that it would be in, in Levi's best interest if he was unable, you know, if, he, if we didn't put him back in. And so we made the decision that as long as Nate was moving the team and, and doing things well, we continue to go with him. And uh, that way we'll make sure that we have Levi for games to come. People probably hear, maybe not at the moment, but at previous parts of this interview, and it'll come back later, the, uh, the lawnmower coming through. Uh, you have one of the few grass fields left in Division Three, and I got a chance to walk on it before the game. And, of course, it is, it is fantastic. I did not expect to see... Uh, anything this pristine in terms of grass but what's it like for you guys and you know that's kind of a I have to think that's kind of an advantage now because nobody plays on grass anymore I, I think it maybe is I hadn't really thought about it from that standpoint we're really proud of the people who take care of our fields and they're really proud of this facility and I think it's just it's an example of the of really the pride and 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 uh, the way we feel about this this football team and this university and and uh, this is an ex is an example of our excellence I mean, I don't know a darn thing about grass, but I, the only place I've ever really seen grass shorter than this is on the putting green. <laughs> I don't know much about putting, but uh, I have heard others people come uh, come come up with the same uh, comment. And uh, from time to time, I have to run golfers off of this field uh, because they want to come down and practice their chipping. So uh, we're proud of the field. I'm glad you liked it. All right. You spent several years, of course, as a member of the West Region Committee and then as the member of the National Committee. You guys saw, of course, Division Three football played at a high level every November and December. What separates, if not you guys, from being at that level or, you know, the, the SCIAC? What, is, what does your team need to do differently or do better to be able to compete at that level that you see perhaps in the Northwest Conference or the American Southwest Conference? Well, there's there's a lot, and I don't I haven't had the opportunity to really compare much uh, with them. Of course, we played Linfield, and, and uh, you know I felt like we were uh, very inconsistent in that game. And I feel like uh, you know if you're going to play at the uh, you know at the best of the best and be a top 25 ranked team, uh, you've really got to play with great consistency. And I think that that we're pretty young, and and I think that that's really the the goal for us is to find some consistency. And, uh, and just build on that. So you've been coaching here for 31 years. You've seen lots of things change in college football in general, in Division Three more specifically. What are the things that you like and maybe what are the things that you dislike about how college football has evolved? Well, I really like the, the safety, the, the, the effort and the concentration to protect our players. It's a better game today. Uh, taking the head out of the game is, is making a great difference. It's given our, our young people to play the game that they love, uh, still in a, in a really aggressive way, but a smarter way and one that's uh, really, really going to help, help the game. Um, things I don't like, I, you know, it's hard to find um, really those things. Um, um, I know you'd have, to, you'd have to give me time to think about that. So for now, I'll just, I'll just have to defer that, that question and, and, uh, and, and try, to, try to give you an answer another day. Maybe that's something I have to ask after a loss or something like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you brought up player safety because if you didn't, then I was going to have to ask how you felt about the targeting call that uh, knocked one of your guys out of the game and then out of, uh, next, out of next week's game. I should say, of course, this is a targeting that was called on one of your players. Um, we never want to target. We 
think we've coached that really well, but obviously we haven't coached it well enough because it did happen. And the young man was made an aggressive play. It was head-to-head contact. Um, it was very unfortunate. He certainly didn't mean there was no intent. It was just one of those things that happens in a spirited game. And uh, it, it's something that we have to learn from, and hopefully everybody in our team learns from. Uh, we never want to be in that environment, in that kind of situation, and uh, and and lose a player the way we did, and one of our best players. Claremont coming up uh, in that next game on October 13th. That's a program that, uh, of course, uh, maybe a bit of a surprise win on Saturday against Cal Lutheran, but a program that certainly has been on the rise in the past couple of years. They do a really good job. Fantastic group of coaches. They they get the most out of their players. They do a very effective job of uh, running and pass- passing and mixing their plays with uh, with with uh, very difficult formations to defend. I think it's going to be a, an epic contest. We're going to have to be at our best. Keith, I tracked down the grounds maintenance guy after the interview, the one who was mowing the grass in the background, and I found out that they cut that grass to a height of one half inch. I know the people of our age, the, the Gen Xers, I guess, played primarily on grass or on that old-style AstroTurf. You might still have rug burns from that, but uh, I've never seen any grass that short, like I said, outside of a golf course. Pat, I played in the 90s, 39 career games. They were all on grass, and one does stand out. The years, Two years we went down to Davidson, which is a FCS school, and um, they kept a pretty – we call it a fast track. They kept the grass super short, and it actually does – I don't know if it makes a difference or if it's what is a placebo effect where you just think it makes a difference when you realize how short the grass is. But uh, because it's right, it's not like golf where where the ball actually rolls on the grass a lot. But I, I felt like it was a faster track. It, um, you know, sometimes coaches would accuse other teams of of watering the grass to slow a fast team down and stuff like that. I feel like the turf kind of evens a lot of that out. And uh, the, the bad thing about turf is when it's really, really hot. It reflects the heat, but this time of year, turf is about as good as it gets. I feel like the other thing that is kind of a, and we're going to tangent this as well for a second here, but the other thing that's kind of a unsung issue or something that's going to continue to come back to bite us, I think, is some of these uh, older turfs and with the the shredded tires and stuff like that. I know uh, products and, and services are moving away from this, and I, I think that that's a positive also. I mean, I look at it mostly from a player standpoint and from a, a management standpoint of a division three athletic program, especially if you have one of those programs that share football shares the field with soccer or lacrosse, you know, it might be the only place on campus with lights. And so, you know, they might need it Tuesday and Thursday night and you need it Saturday night. Yeah. You can do all that in turf and the, and a week of rain doesn't kill your whole season. I remember, you know, you sometimes go places and there'd be a patch of dirt around the, between the 20 and the 35. And, you know, they couldn't do anything about it because it's the only field they had to play on. Yeah, it's definitely one of the things that has it, it's very efficient for schools and that sort of thing. Like you said, you can play a ton of games on the same field. You can have all your practices on the same field. Um, lots of places where a school on Saturday will have three contests on that same field on game day, not just the football game. It's definitely happened to me before. Johns Hopkins, like the football game was over and you're interviewing people on the field. And they're like hustling you off the field because Muhlenberg soccer is getting ready to warm up. (laughs) Exactly. Take a look here at our six games to watch for Saturday. And I've got to start off this uh, feature with the game that more people watched last year than any other Division III football game ever. Uh, That's St. Thomas versus St. John's, or as it's typically referred to, the Tommy Johnny game. 
St. Thomas has won four of these in a row and seven out of nine, including last year's game, played in front of 37,000 in Target Field in Minneapolis. Uh, the Tommies have also won four in a row in Collegeville. This week, in front of something like more to 15,000 to 17,000, it's expected to be partly cloudy and in the 50s, about as good as you can get up here for football in mid-October. We know the Johnnies can throw the ball, and even after throwing two picks last week, Jackson Erdman still leads D3 in passing efficiency. But the Johnnies limited St. John's to one rushing yard in last year's meeting, and I think that will still be the key factor. St. Thomas averages 286 yards a game on the ground, and while nobody's rushing defense looks as good as, say, Brockport's, the Tommies are third nationally in rush defense at 15 yards a game, and they allow the second fewest passing yards per game at 109.8. The good news for St. John's is that last week against Bethel, they got a good look at some things they needed to work on, while nobody so far this season has really pressed St. Thomas. Speaking of defense, let's hear from Frank Rossi. From In the Huddle and D3Football.com, I'm Frank Rossi. Saturday marks the battle of the last two conference unbeatens in the Empire 8 Conference as number 4 Brockport travels to Alfred. In last year's Week 10 matchup, both Golden Eagles quarterback Joe Germanario and Saxon's QB Bryce Morrison were knocked out of the game in the fourth quarter as Alfred tried to put together a dramatic late comeback. Brockport's defense came up with a big interception late to seal the victory 35-25. This year, one Brockport coach told me that the questions for them entering this game are simple. Can we stop the run? Can we run the ball? The focus on the run is crucial in a matchup between the conference's top rushing teams, with Alfred edging out Brockport with 203 rushing yards per game, but Brockport leading with 17 touchdowns on the ground. Ironically though, Brockport has the best rush defense not only in the conference, but in the country, with an average of minus 11.6 rushing yards per game given up and no rushing touchdowns allowed so far. Alfred is 49th in the nation and 3rd in the conference, giving up 98 rushing yards per game. Between the two teams, Brockport has played more consistent football over the last few weeks after a head-scratchingly narrow 13-7 win over Ithaca in Week 2. Since then, they have outscored their opponents 169-26. The Saxons lost their second game of the season in Week 3, ironically to Ithaca 21-13, and then outdueled Cortland and Morrisville State for 5-point victories before routing Buffalo State by 44. While momentum and consistency in defense would suggest Brockport should win this game, the Empire 8 has a history of conference game upsets over the past decade in games just like these. Alfred's Univich Stadium is always a tough place to play for opponents, and with rain and snow showers predicted for Saturday, anything can happen in a battle for the driver's seat in the Empire 8. Back to two men who run for positive yardage every week, Pat and Keith. Pat, let's take a look at UW Platteville at number 13, UW Oshkosh. This battle for the number two slot in the WIAC could vault Platteville back into the top 25 and punt Oshkosh out of the playoff picture. Since both the Pioneers and Titans have a loss already, technically Oshkosh has two to Division II Davenport and last week to WIAC leader UW-Whitewater, but for playoff picture purposes, say that three times fast, we only care about the latter. So this game has WIAC, top 25, and playoff implications. The Pioneers' offense is humming. Running back Sean Studer had third, 30 carries and five touchdowns last week against River Falls, and senior wideout Mark Johnson had seven catches for 179 yards, including an 80-yard score. The defense is up and down, though, for, for UW-Platteville. They've got 10 turnovers and 12 sacks in five games, and they allow 25 points per game. UW Oshkosh is almost the complete opposite, giving up only 11 and a half per game and scoring just 17 and a half. And they're coming off a shutout loss to Whitewater. Both teams have sophomore quarterbacks, so if either defense can get into the backfield, there's a chance it can rattle a young starter. But otherwise, it's hard to know whether this will be a high or low scoring game. I think it's a lot closer than the poll might indicate, and I would not be surprised by a Platteville road win here. Pat, why don't you give us the lowdown on what the team that beat UW Platteville is facing this week? 
That sounds like a plan. That's Thomas Moore, and they host number 23 Muhlenberg this week for a game that I'm just happy is on the schedule. When Thomas Moore was looking to fill a 10-game schedule with no conference games, it was going to need some schools to be creative in the middle of the season. So I was glad when Muhlenberg was taking uh, its mid-season centennial conference bye week and hopping a bus to Cincinnati. This is a nice test and a bit of a risk for Muhlenberg, which comes back and plays McDaniel next week before its showdown with Johns Hopkins on October 27th. For the Mules, Mark Riggio burst onto the scene last week with 155 rushing yards, joining James Diggs, who has rushed for 110 and 163 the past two weeks. On the opposite side, for Thomas Moore, Javier Pitts has been a workhorse, rushing for 906 yards on 129 carries so far this season. This is uh, shaping up to be a really nice battle between the 5-0 and Mules and the 5-1 and Saints. Well, let's keep these Pennsylvania ties rolling as Lycoming goes to number 22, Delaware Valley. The Aggies coming off a win against Stevenson and with no game scheduled against Mac co-leader Misericordia this season, they have to guard against a letdown this week since they're in control of their own destiny for the most part. Part of the issue with an 11-team conference is everyone doesn't play one another, although it could. But who knew the lack of a DelVal Misericordia clash had the potential to bloom into a W&J Case Western Reserve situation? Anyway, the Aggies rallied from 17 down last week to beat Stevenson. They've won 15 straight MAC games and have run off four wins since the season opening loss at Wesley. This is homecoming and like coming, coming off a bye, turned to a freshman quarterback, Elijah Shemory or Shemory. When you're a freshman, we don't even know how to pronounce your name. They turned to a freshman in their last game, a loss to Kings. So the Aggies are the clear favorite here, but one of the hardest hurdles between being good and being dominant is being consistent enough to treat every game and every week of practice leading up to it like it's huge. Now let's send it to Around the Nation national columnist Adam Turner for a look at a huge matchup in the Inland Northwest. The resilient Lutes travel to Spokane to take on the Northwest Conference-leading Whitworth Pirates. Pacific Lutheran has rallied in each of its first two conference contests, forcing overtime at Puget Sound after trailing by 14 early and by 7 late. Last week, the Lutes delivered rookie head coach Brant McAdams his first NWC win by overcoming a 17-6 deficit to defeat Pacific. Whitworth finds itself in unfamiliar territory in the driver's seat of the Northwest Conference after knocking off perennial champion Linfield in the conference opener. The Pirates, ranked 19th in the latest Top 25 poll, handed the Wildcats just their second conference loss of the past decade. The key for Pacific Lutheran will be avoiding a comeback opportunity. The Lutes need to get out to a faster start than they have in any of their first four games. The offense has struggled, with senior quarterbacks Walker Lavoie and Nolan Hoover each trying to find a rhythm to kickstart the unit. Anthony Loudon does a little bit of everything, as the leading rusher and second leading receiver is also one of the nation's top punters. The defense has forced nine turnovers and held opponents to 368 yards and 20.5 points per game. The Pirates are undefeated thanks to their stifling defense, which allows just 324 yards and 14.5 points per game, and a balanced offense manned by quarterback Leif Erickson. The defense has forced 10 turnovers, led by Shea Palawa's three interceptions. Pitting Whitworth's defense against the struggling Pacific Lutheran offense should result in the Pirates extending their Northwest Conference lead. A Lutes upset would be the first signature win of the McAdams era. Pat and Keith, back to you. It's time for On the Spot. It might turn to go first as uh, I lost the toss last week. And Keith, we're going to play a game here that's uh, constructed around a pretty simple mathematical constant, which is to say two is greater than one. Sound good? Uh, I'm with you so far. All right. And to play two is greater than one, what I need you to do is I need you to pick two games in which... The winning school has two names in the name of their school, and the losing team has one or okay. none. Or none. So, for example, 
we have a game this weekend between Washington and Lee and Emory and Henry. Those are both teams that have two people's names in the name of their school. Either one of them would be great as a winner if they weren't playing each other. But that's the kind of thing that we're looking for. Does that make sense? But I can make my own pick. I don't have to guess yours, right? You do not have to guess mine. So you just have to find someone on the schedule that has two persons' names in their in their school. Like you were uh, like last week, and you were talking about Williams and Bates. Williams is the is the name of a person. We need you got to have a school that has two people's names in it. Obviously, you're setting me up here to redeem myself for picking against my alma mater last week. They uh, Randolph Macon is at Shenandoah on Saturday. Randolph Macon is right now in the lead in the ODAC, but six teams in the ODAC are one and one in conference play. Randolph Macon's two and zero. That's a pretty short trip from Ashland to uh, to Winchester. So the road factor, I don't think, is a major factor, and I think the Jackets are playing pretty well. I'll take Randolph Macon at Shenandoah. I think I'm down to Carnegie Mellon to get over Bethany. They're at home. The car, right? The Carnegies were one family, so the Mellon PSFS people have to be another family. There you go. Am I right? Yeah, that's one that works. I didn't even have that on my radar, but that is perfect because, indeed. And if you remember, if you remember your 1930s small college football, Carnegie Tech was a separate institution before the Mellon name was added. So there you go. Did not remember that. Now Bethany's three and three, Carnegie Mellon's two and three. So I don't know how good of a pick it is, but within the confines of on the spot, I think I'm in good shape. All right, now I'm gonna I'm gonna flip this around on you, and then here is the exception that proves the rule, which is one of my least favorite phrases because it makes no sense. So to prove the rule, I want you to pick somebody that is a two-name school that will lose. All right, Pat, you didn't leave me with a lot of options here. It's uh, Linfield, which we learned. Um, doing a little research that it is named after a person. It was previously McMinnville College and then was named after a member of the Linfield family. Uh, they're playing Lewis and Clark. The other option was Claremont Mud Scripts, which has three names, but Claremont is is the location in California. Harvey Mud and Scripps. I don't know who Scripps is, but I know the Scripps Howard News Service. So that's a person. Um, but I think I'm going to go with the easy pick, which is Washington and Jefferson. And Hopefully, I don't have to explain who those two people are to any of our listeners. At um, uh, They're at home against Geneva, and, and they're battling to stay in control of the PAC race. I've clearly created a game that's way too complicated. This was the one where the two-person one has to lose. They have to lose? <laughs> yeah, it's the, exception. Well, then, it's the exception that proves the rule. Well, then definitely Lin- Linfield at Lewis and Clark. Sorry, Lewis and Clark. I'm thrilled you created a game. I think these are the most, to me, this is part of the most fun part of the podcast each week, just because it changes up from, you know, what we do, which is a lot of, you know, serious talk and, and we're previewing and, you know, trying to get listeners to know some players and teams across the country that they wouldn't normally pay attention to. But it's okay to have a little fun here and on the spot. So for you, let's play Plymouth Rockford again. This is the same game we played last week. I give you a matchup. You have to tell me what those two teams have in common and pick your winner. They start easy. They get progressively tougher. Listeners, please play along. All right, you took my first game. You made me. You made me cash that one in. In uh, in your version of on the spot, Lewis and Clark at Linfield. So I have to su- I have to substitute in here, and the substitute is Tufts at Trinity. Same rule as L- Lewis and Clark at Linfield, though. Same rule as Lewis and Clark at Linfield. So the uh, Tufts Trinity game. Does that mean that there's a coach in common in this game? Tufts and Trinity. It doesn't. It's way easier. Remember, they start easy. Tufts and Trinity, these are both schools that begin with T, and I'm going to pick Trinity. Yeah. 
Okay. Whew. I thought I was overthinking it for a second. I clearly was. All right. All right. Another easy one. East Texas Baptist at Texas Lutheran. Right, because they both have Texas in the name. Uh huh. And I'm gonna pick I'm gonna pick East Texas Baptist, I guess. All right. Maine Maritime at Coast Guard. Maine Maritime at Coast Guard. These are just both, uh, not just, of course, because it's super important, but uh, both schools connected with the maritime industry, one maritime and the other protecting them. Um, and I'll take Coast Guard. Okay. They're going to get a little harder now. Okay. Beloit at Ripon. Beloit at Ripon are both Wisconsin schools with five letters in their names, and I'm going to pick Ripon. Oh, Beloit, B-E-L-O-I-T. That's six letters. Ah, I can't. You're, you're super close. You're, you want to guess again or you want me to just give it away? All right. Beloit at Ripon. Um, they both have this. No, they don't have the same vowels. Um, Beloit at Ripon. They're both colleges named after the Wisconsin city in which they're located. Oh, sure. Okay. Good enough. I take that. And Ripon winning still. Okay. And then this one, this is, is probably as hard as it'll ever get for this game, but if you, you should get this one. Rowan at TCNJ. Uh, Rowan at TCNJ are both schools that were originally named something else. Uh, Rowan was Glassboro State and was prominent as Glassboro State. Uh, TCNJ was Trenton State and prominent as Trenton State. So I'm going to pick uh, Rowan in the winner of that game. Gotcha. Well, that was it. And uh, since they were so easy for you, I'll, I'll throw you a bonus. Okay. Wisconsin Lutheran at Benedictine. Wisconsin Lutheran at uh, Benedictine. These are both uh, among the schools in the NAC who are one and four. I know that's a there's a lot of them, but that's... dang, that's better than mine. Mine was pretty simple. It was just that they both have religious themes in their name. Oh, there you go. Oh, sure, yeah, uh, a Catholic versus Lutheran game. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Benedictine. I, I know uh, Benedictine hasn't looked that great so far this year, but I still felt like they're still decent this year. Well, we do on the spot now. We got to do spot check, which is uh, how we did last week in in on the spot. And last week, yeah, let's see. We had uh, Keith pick two invasive species or two non-native species to win a game on Saturday, and Keith went with the Panthers and Quakers. I appreciated the out of the box thinking there. Uh, the Panthers beat Earlham, but his Quakers pick Gil- Guilford lost to Randolph Macon. Uh, I've never been so pleased to be so wrong, but carry on. All right, uh, we Plymouth rocked last week. Plymouth rocked my world, and I was asked to determine the significance of those six pairings from week six. Uh, I was uh, correct on four of them. I had Framingham over Fitchburg, Alvernia over Misericordia, Williams beating Bates, and Tufts beating Bowdoin, but I missed on the tougher ones, which is to say uh, Pacific Lutheran beat Pacific and Hobart beat Union, so four out of six on that one. That Hobart win was a little bit of a surprise. We we previewed it last week and said it would be a, a pretty tough Liberty League matchup, but uh, Union was looking pretty strong coming in. So that that Liberty League is going to be an interesting matchup, uh, interesting conference to watch as we go down the stretch. Here. The roulette wheel is spinning. We've got 113 games this week to make note of, and we're landing on number 57. And game number 57 for this week is Hartwick at St. John Fisher. And Keith, this is a pretty interesting game, actually. Oh, first of all, we have to come up with a uh, we have to come up with a rivalry trophy for this one, too. I'm thinking something like the uh, the birdcage trophy or something like that. St. John Fisher is the Cardinals. Hartwick is the Hawks. Hartwick plays on the field known as the cage. How do you think about that? Yeah, I like that. I like that. I, you know, otherwise, like the aviary in the zoo. That was what I was thinking of. So yours is way better. It's been a uh, it's been a tough year for both of these guys, right? St. John Fisher is winless. Hartwick comes into the game 
at uh, two and three, uh, but zero oh and two in the conference. They beat Wilkes and they beat Alfred State, but uh, they've gotten their doors blown off the last two weeks by Buff State and Brockport. Uh, I think uh, either of these teams obviously is going to be pretty happy to get out of here with uh, with a win. Uh, similarly, last two weeks, St. John Fisher got blown up by Brockport and by Utica. So it's uh, these teams are going to be pretty happy to see each other this week, I would think. Yeah, I imagine. Hartwick, uh, two and three record at this point in the season, not entirely unexpected. That's a, you know, they're usually fairly middle of the pack in the Empire Eight, but on a three game losing streak, happy to see uh, an 0 and four team coming in, uh, you know, to this week for their game. But um, I think the bigger picture takeaway here is St. John Fisher being, you know, basically a 10, 9, 8 win team for several years coming up to last season when they surprisingly fell to two and eight. And if we thought that was an aberration, turns out it wasn't. They, uh, Pat, you mentioned not just winless this season, but not competitive in, uh, in, in a bunch of their games. Now it's pretty, pretty tough schedule. Um, Washington, Jefferson, Ithaca, Brockport, all been ranked this season, but the, the Utica loss, uh, 33, seven last week, you know, this is a team that's beaten down and certainly is going to look for an opportunity to get right, uh, at home against Hartwick, at home against Morrisville State the next couple of weeks before they they get back into the tough end of the Empire 8. But right now, really, that's a really good program that, that's uh, fallen on tough times, and you've got to try to figure out why. When Hartwick's going well, it's uh, Bryce Messina getting the job done at quarterback. Uh, you remember, of course, uh, way back, God, it is way back now, when we talk about uh, Hartwick having its uh, great years at quarterback with Jason Boltus. Yeah, exactly right. And so, uh, you know, the against Brockport, of course, surprisingly, get this, Hartwick did not have a lot of success running the ball. That'll probably change a little bit this week, but uh, I, I think this will. Uh, I think that's where this is gonna this is gonna swing on whether uh, whether either of these teams really can muster some offense. Yeah, it's it's been a grind for both. Quickly, just an aside, when we uh, ran that story about Brockport this week and the Brockport run defense. I normally am not the kind of person who will throw in something snide into a serious news story or into a chart, but to point out the fact that uh, the uh, the Brockport run defense was so good that there were there were two teams that had even done worse than the bye week team had. I don't know. Oh wow! Yeah, you're wait, you're not the type of person that will throw something snide in not to into a chart. Now, a chart was a good qualification there, <laughs> right? Into a chart or a serious news story. That's what the podcast is for, or Twitter, right? Yes. Or Facebook comments, Keith says, as he's uh, walking away. All right. Of course, the point of the one-liners is I rattle off six games, and then Keith comes back and responds to them. So we're going to go with uh, 10th-ranked John Carroll at Ohio Northern. We've got Denison at DePauw, Bethel at St. Olaf. We've got uh, Claremont at Redlands, Montclair State at Salisbury, and Randolph-Macon at Shenandoah. Pat, that Blue Streaks Polar Bears game looked better before ONU lost to Marietta. Denison and DePauw are each among the four three and one teams trailing Wittenberg in the North Coast. Bethel and St. Olaf have just one loss between them, but that other Mayak matchup is going to soak up all the attention this week. The Bulldogs and Stags are playing for sole possession of first in the Skyak. Montclair State and Salisbury surprisingly undefeated in the NJAC, which is being led by Wesley and Frostburg State. And then Shenandoah are one of six teams, one game behind Randolph Macon in the ODAC, which we mentioned earlier, but we did not mention they're one of three teams in that conference named after Buzzy Insects. This is Hornets versus Yellow Jackets. Buzz, 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 buzz,
Quick Hits, of course, is our weekly Friday look at the upcoming set of games with six people giving answers to six questions in a vain attempt to give you some random set of opinions. No, they're informed opinions. But we asked everyone to pick an unbeaten team that would lose to someone who's unranked, basically so people couldn't get off easy by picking Bethel to lose to St. John's. And Keith, you and I and Adam Turr all got uh, Albion losing to Hope. Ryan Tipps picked on uh, Union losing to Hobart. Our guest, Paul Schreel, picked Salisbury, which ended up uh, beating Christopher Newport but needing overtime to do so. Uh, Frank Rossi's pick, Amherst, beat Middlebury 21-0. Yes, and by default did not lose to someone unranked. Who served notice that they were going to turn things around? Keith picked Linfield, Ryan's pick of Southwestern, my pick of Aurora, but not Frank's pick of Buffalo State, which lost to Alfred 51-7. Or Adam's pick of Albright and Paul's Cal Lutheran. We also picked people to pick a, quote, interesting game outside of the so-called Big Six, which we previewed on last week's podcast here. And, of course, interesting could mean a lot of things, but, Keith, you hit on the perfect combination of close score and meaningful game when you picked Carthage and Illinois Wesleyan. And nobody picked a top 25 upset, but that's because our poll was awesome and there weren't any to be had. Uh, If you follow the coaches poll, of course, Wesley got upset by a lower ranked team in Frostburg State and the AFCA had Wabash ranked as well. And uh, they lost 34 to 10 to Denison. Here's where I can be snide, right? Or snarky. I think snide and snarky fits you perfectly, Pat. You guys can see this week's quick hits on the website by noon on Friday. We do our picks here on the podcast. This is a panel of six that we put online. You can check that out. And then, uh, Follow this weekend's games and then come back and listen to us again on Monday. We're going to wrap it up with uh, this week's pick six. This is the six games where I, I throw a game at Keith and he just picks a winner and then we continue on. You ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Barry at Hendricks. Barry. Buffalo State at Cortland. Cortland. Emory and Henry and WNL. WNL. Lawrence at McAllister. Ooh, McAllister's at home. I'll take them. Brevard at Huntingdon. Ooh, Brevard got off the schneid recently. Huntingdon has not. Hmm, I'm gonna. I'll go with. Uh, I'll go with Huntingdon. All right, and Anderson at Earlham. Oh, got to go with Anderson. Unfortunately, to, to, the losing streak will continue. And, you know, that would put the losing streak for Earlham at 50 consecutive games if they lose this week, which would tie the Division Three all-time record held by McAllister, a streak which they ended back in 1980. But uh, for Earlham, this is their best shot uh, at this, basically, not quite for the rest of the season, but it keeps them out of the record book. They have Anderson this week, they have Franklin next week, and then they have Defiance in Week 10. And you really do root for teams that have been going through this the struggles long enough to where you have people in the program who haven't won a college football game. You just certainly want to see them have that taste of, of victory one time. Not sure it'll happen, but if it does, uh, it'll be a big deal. It'll be a big deal. You can find about out about that on the front page of D3Football.com on Saturday. Uh, also, if you missed some of the things that we wrote about this week, I definitely recommend a story that uh, Joe Sager did on the Brockport defense. We talked a little bit about them statistically a few moments ago, and uh, he uh, dives into that defense and talks to those guys. Uh, we have a feature about the uh, three Puget Sound wide receivers, all averaging 96 yards a game or more. It was 100 yards or more a game 
up until this past week. Uh, and then, you know, we talked quite a bit about uh, John Gillardi and uh, his legacy on the site this week. Uh, Frank Rakowski, who uh, worked for the St. Cloud Times for 15, 16 years or so covering St. John's, uh, had a remembrance of John Gillardi, which uh, we posted to the website on Thursday morning as well. And then uh, Adam Turr's Around the Nation column, you should pick that up as well. Pick that up like it's a newspaper, right? You can't get the newspaper out of me. Um, you should go to the newsstand and pick up this uh, column that Adam Turr wrote about uh, Pacific Lutheran, where the uh, Brant McAdams is the uh, head coach there. And, of course, he's the first non-Westering to be a head coach of Pacific Lutheran since 1971. And that's an interesting position to be in. And uh, Adam talks about that with Coach McAdams. Well, just to go back to that that Frank Rakowski piece, you really can't anywhere. You won't be able to find a, a better person to to write that that piece because uh, Frank was so intimately around the uh, the St. John's program for a lot of their good years. And though even though he wasn't there, you say for the '76 championship, you know when you're around a program for a long time, you get to know the old timers and the history as well. So really, no better uh, remembrance of, of John out there. Yeah, and uh, I'm really glad glad that we were able to have that. In all honesty, because you know, he's not at the St. Cloud Times anymore. So like many journalists, maybe we shouldn't have this conversation. That's just going to depress me. Well, you give you opportunity to get snarky, though, to the corporate, not to the people who, who, uh, never mind. Yeah. Snarky to the people. No, snarky to the corporates. This was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 211, released on October 12th, 2018. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage this weekend. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get these things we call podcasts because that will help other football fans find it. You can leave comments for us on the blog page and in other ways, which we'll mention in just a moment. But the executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, and you can find him at djmentos.com. By the way, I noticed DJ Mentos has a podcast as well, so I'll be listening to that in uh, the course of the next couple days. Thanks to our correspondents, Adam Turr and Frank Rossi. Also thanks to guest Mike Maynard and Sports Information Director Rachel Roach for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three Football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three Sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering a post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. And for the people who still listen here at the end of the podcast, uh, previously we've kind of thrown out some questions or things for feedback. So uh, we appreciate getting feedback from people on those things. Thanks so much. I had a crazy notion. As I sit here kind of finishing up the rundown for the podcast and waiting for Keith to join the conference call, uh, Keith often logs in as I'm singing or doing some uh, stupid acapella music stuff. If only we could record those uh, loops, uh, bloopers and and play them. Uh, Some of them exist, but the uh, reason why I'm suggesting it now is because I've had this uh, every time I sit down and think about the podcast, the DJ Mentos music runs through my head. That is how I partially how I psych myself up for sitting down here and doing this. So are you going to do the Bobby McFerrin thing? Well, I'm going to offer it out to the people and let the people decide. Do you want to hear me sing the uh, the opening music acapella? I am willing to uh, sit down here in my quote unquote recording studio and uh, multi-layer myself doing, you know, that sort of stuff. Sounds like the night court theme for, for your old heads out there. 
I have no good night court references. How could I not have any good night court references? Seriously. Oh. Thank you so much, everybody.